Hi there, and welcome to Northview Online. We're so glad you're here to join us for this week's sermon. The Bible is the perfect guide for our lives as followers of Jesus, and we pray that this message helps you draw nearer to God. At Northview, we believe that living our faith is meant to be done together. If you're looking for a church community, we would love for you to visit one of our campuses, or we can help find a great church near you. And don't forget about all the other amazing resources we have to offer, like Northview Kids Online, original songs, podcasts, and more. You can find everything you need on our website, northview.org. We'll be in John chapter 11 tonight, and I'll give you a moment to find that as I uh, introduce myself briefly. I'm Alex Martin. I'm one of the pastoral interns. I work with community groups, which is our, uh, one of our uh, groups that meet in homes for discipleship, for studying the word together and caring for each other. And if you're eager to get into one of those groups, talk, find me after the service. I'll be glad to talk to you about, about that. So John chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was ill. So the sisters said to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he, that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, do you nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know 
so that they might arrest him. Thanks, brother. That was awesome. So uh, the idea was that was a long story, and it wasn't going to come off my sermon time. So we're having someone else read it. No, it's very, very important. Uh, That story tells us in story form what uh, so much of the rest of the New Testament teaches us didactically. But wrapping it into the beauty of a story pulls us into the reality of it. And so we're diving in. You will know this by now if you've been around. We are studying the book of John. Uh, We're midway through the book, and we're headed up to Easter. Uh, The the text is beautiful in the timing of how we we wrapped up. We didn't really plan it this way until we started to break it apart and realized we're going to get to this just headed into Easter. Uh, The songs that we sang tonight, and then uh, next weekend we're headed into baptism, all about new life, and then two weeks from now, Easter. So what a beautiful text to be in as we get uh, toward that. So I'm going to set up the context. We read it, but you will want your Bibles. We're not going to reread it, but I'm going to refer to several verses on our way through. So you want to be able to have your Bibles. We won't have them all up on the screen, but I'll just reference a few of things. We, we hear in this text, this massive declaration in the middle that you should have listened. When Jesus made this declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. So that is the the fifth of the seven I am statements. Now, you will have heard me talk about these before. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, etc. And in this text, the fifth of those seven, I am the resurrection and the life. So in essence, we're listening into funeral conversations. Uh, Those before the funeral, those during the funeral, and those after the funeral. And so I want to just quickly remind you of the context that we're in. We are literally 21 weeks into this study, and we finally reached the halfway mark in the book of John. So the first half of this book, it can be easily divided. The first 12 chapters are the first three years of Jesus' public ministry. And there are 12 uh, 12 chapters. There are these seven signs and miracles that have happened. Water into wine. The official son was healed. The lame man was healed. The feeding of the 5,000. The walking on the water. The healing of the blind man. And today, the final and the greatest sign before his persecution begins, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So we have covered those 12 chapters, those three years, and then the next half, verses, uh, chapters 13 to 20, all take place in just one week. So you see the half. Half, three years, the other half in just one week, and we're going to get there in the fall, actually, as we cover the passion of the Christ. But chapter 11 is like a hinge point between those two chunks of Scripture. And I've mentioned it many times that John puts these little time stamps throughout his book. So back in chapter 2, we saw the first one when he said in chapter 2, it was Passover. And then later we'll see again, it was Passover. It was Passover. Three times he mentions that. He mentions it was the festival of tabernacles or the feast of tabernacles in the fall. We mentioned last weekend, it was the feast of dedication, which is in the winter or the month of December. And so he puts these timestamps in there and it helps us identify. So what's the importance to this text? Well, last weekend, uh, the, the story of the Good Shepherd, chapter 10, verse 22, we're told it was the Feast of Dedication. In other words, it's early December, it's early winter. And now in chapter 11, verse 55, you heard Alex say the words, now the Passover of the Jews is at hand. So now we've fast forwarded to April. In that gap, somewhere between chapter 10 and now beginning, headed into chapter 12, is this four-month window between December and April, and Jesus has gone up to the northeast, and now he makes his way back down for this miracle story. So the chapter 10 ends, the good shepherd, Jesus saves us, 
He calls us, he keeps us, that was last weekend, and then it ended with the Jews picking up stones to kill him, and the text finishes this way, and they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands, and he went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So Jesus goes a couple days journey up the north and the east side of the Jordan River. He's away from the Jews down in Jerusalem who are trying to arrest and kill him. What this text tells us is very straightforward. That Jesus Christ holds the keys to death and the grave, and that Jesus Christ is the only one who can offer us new life. New life here and new life eternal. And that as followers of Jesus, we have this deeply rooted hope that physical death is not the end of our existence. That is central to the Christian faith. That physical death is not the end of our existence. So we're going to look at these conversations. We're going to look at some before the funeral, just briefly. We're going to spend most of our time on the conversations that took place at the funeral itself, and then just touch on those that followed up the funeral. So really quickly, the conversations before the funeral, the first 16 verses that were read. So you've got these people, these characters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother, who have become friends of Jesus. And their home in Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem, had become sort of his ministry hub. So Jesus, born in Bethlehem, moved to Nazareth, and then moved to his ministry center of Capernaum. So when he's up in Galilee in the north, his ministry center is Capernaum. When he comes to Jerusalem, he ends up camping out, often at the bed and breakfast, out in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Two sisters. Now, we don't know a ton about them, but we are assuming that these two sisters are single, and that is why they are living with their brother. Because in that day, you lived at home with dad until you got married. And if dad died, you moved in with your brother. So these two sisters probably are unmarried. They're living with their brother. Is Lazarus married? We don't know. He might be single as well. There's no Mrs. Lazarus in the text. So we're not sure, and, and maybe it doesn't matter. But these two sisters and these brothers, and over time, they have become very close with Jesus. And you can see it in their text, because in verse 3, they came to tell Jesus, the one that you love is ill. He's sick. The one that you love, Lazarus, Jesus, you love him. And you get down to verse 5, and it says specifically, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then later, as Jesus is weeping at the grave, the crowds look at his emotion, and they go, look how he loved Lazarus. So there's this close relationship between them. And because of that, there's a really interesting twist. And I don't know how you were listening. I mean, that's a long text, 57 verses long. But back in verse 6, Lazarus is sick, and so Jesus is like, oh, he's sick. Let's wait two more days. Jesus didn't go right away. He delays. And that's a very interesting thought. The fact that he didn't just jump up and run to Bethany in the moment, that he had a greater plan in mind. And he says specifically to the disciples, this sickness, ultimately this death, is for my glory. It's for my glory. Now we could just drop that and let it hang out there for a little bit. And think that through. Because if we take that text and just that little thought alone, we would have to imply that sometimes God's will and God's plan includes sickness and even death. Amen. That God's will sometimes includes sickness and even death. Now, this does not compute with most of us, right? 
Because most of us like to think of God's blessing only in the terms of addition. And I remember a very poignant story. So some of you will know this woman, Jean Barsness. Dr. Jean Barsness was a missions professor back in the day when we were attending Briarcrest Bible College. She has an amazing story of how as a young married couple, her and her first husband went as missionaries to Panama and into their mid-30s, tragic events. There's political upheaval in Panama at the time and political guerrillas take him thinking that the ministry, the gospel ministry that they're involved in is part of a political coup. They take her husband out and brutally kill him. He is stabbed to death in his early 30s leaving her behind as a widow with two young children. So she returns to Canada, she gets her education, she teaches missions, she eventually remarries, all these kind of stories. But in her autobiography and in her testimony, if you've heard it before that, she said, up until that point in my life, I had always thought about God's blessings in the terms of additions. What he added to my life, how he blessed, how he added. But here I learned that God blesses sometimes with subtractions. Because in the years that followed, as she learned to rely upon God in a way that she would have never, ever had to rely upon God if her husband had not been martyred there in the jungles of Panama. Amazing story that sometimes God uses sickness and even death. That doesn't equate too well today. So two days later, he's like, let's go to Judea. I've got some work to do. They're like, Jesus, why are you going back to Judea? They just ran you out of town. And little essence, they're a little cryptic. He's like, you know what? If you're not dead, you're not done. It's still daylight, boys. In other words, the night is coming. The night is coming of my death when I'm no longer going to be working, but it is still daylight. There's 12 hours of daylight in my life, and I've got time left in the day. And so to all of you sitting here, if you're not dead, God's not done with you yet. There's still daylight hours. Let's go. I got work to do. Lazarus is asleep. And they're like, well, he'll wake up. And he's like, no, boys, how dumb are you? He's dead. He gets very, very clear. Verse 14, he is dead, I'm telling you. And then enter Thomas, this nice little, you know, these funny little quips that John includes for us. I, don't, I wonder what the relationship with John and Thomas was like, those two disciples. Thomas the doubter, Thomas the skeptic, Thomas the contrarian. And if Thomas was a Winnie the Pooh character, he would for sure would be Eeyore. Well, we might as well go die with him. Let's go die with him. Pick out the songs for your funeral, boys conversations before the funeral. Then he arrives at the funeral. Verse 17, the longest chunk we're going to spend here, 17 to 44. He has a conversation with Martha, a conversation with Mary, and ultimately he has a conversation with Lazarus. He arrives there four days after the burial. Now for us, we may go, okay, the funeral's long gone, but not in that context. Because in that context, the funeral, the mourning would be a full seven days of mourning. The body was buried immediately because they did not have modern embalming. They didn't have any way to preserve it. It was a hot Middle Eastern culture, and that body would begin to decay very quickly. So you put it in the cave and roll a stone over, but then you go into a period of mourning, literally 30 days of mourning before you go through cleansing, and then you go back to the, the synagogue and to the temple, but specifically those first seven days. And those first seven days when all your friends and family and the hired mourners it was tradition that a Jewish family would hire wailers and flute players. So just in case there wasn't enough tears going on, or in case there was a little light moment in that week, they would start wailing again to remind you that someone had died. So this is what's happening. And as Jesus enters in the fourth day, Martha hears that he's coming close to town, runs out to meet him, and she meets him with these words, if you had only been here, Jesus... If you had only been here, so is it a bit of rebuke? Is it a bit of sorrow? But Jesus, had you been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And then she says this statement, and even now, whatever you ask, the Lord is able to do. That's a very interesting statement. 
Because you might read that and say, did Martha already know in advance what Jesus was going to do? Even now, Jesus, whatever you ask, I don't think so. I think what was happening in that moment is what often happens in times of grief and shock. Martha is just spilling off platitudes and cliches. And not that they are not true. It is absolutely true. Whatever you ask of the Lord, he is able to do for you, Jesus. But in that moment, she doesn't really believe it. And we know that from the following conversation. She doesn't really think Jesus is going to ask and Lazarus will be raised. She's just simply saying, yeah, all things work together for good who those who love the Lord. Oh, the Lord has some good reason. Like the things that we say when someone dies, right? Sometimes not thinking what we're saying and their platitudes. Jesus says to her, yeah, Martha, your brother is going to rise again. And here's how we know that she didn't get it. Because she's like, I know that, Jesus. I know that in the final day, in the final day of resurrection, some way out there in the future, I know what Daniel says in Daniel 12, that all are going to rise and some will rise to eternal life and others to eternal shame. I know that. I've read the book of Job. I heard it as a little girl. For now I know that my Redeemer lives And on the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I know those verses, Jesus. I believe that in the final resurrection, he will be raised. And then Jesus utters these great words. When he turns and he looks at her, and he says, Martha, Martha... Your theology is as great as as good as it goes, as far as it goes... But let me tell you something, Martha. I am the resurrection. Like the resurrection is not just a thing out there in the future. I am standing right in front of you. I am who I am is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he dies, he will never die. He will live. And so Jesus gives a theology lesson. Uh, He answers Martha with truth. Now, I think if you know Martha's personality, Martha, the worker bee, Martha, the pragmatist, Martha, the doer, Martha, the one who had run out of town to meet him, he knows that what what she needs in that moment is the truth. She needs hope. She needs a secure future that he is the resurrection. Now, let's just press pause there for a minute and sit and ponder for a few moments and, and ask a couple questions. Just take a pause in the middle of this. Hovering in the background to this story are the critical questions about life and death that every single one of us has to answer. What do you believe? What do I believe about life and death? And that's a very serious question. What do you believe about life and death? Because eventually, unless the Lord returns soon, every single one of us will pass through death's door. So far, the stats are 100%. And I've been at a lot of funerals, and I've heard a lot of weird and wonderful things said at funerals. I've heard things like, oh, there's now a star up there twinkling in the sky. So apparently, we just get absorbed into the universe. I've heard people say, oh, the Lord needed another angel. Oh, so he changes us into angels? Is that what happens? And then others who are like, you know, if it's a golfer, oh, he's up on that great golf course in the sky, which for me would be like purgatory. Like, why would you make me golf for eternity? (laughs) 
But these weird and wonderful things. And, and so you've all heard the cheesy jokes of arriving in heaven and St. Peter at the pearly gates and all the conversations. Uh, you're getting to know my sense of humor. You will not be surprised that the Far Side cartoons are some of my favorite. I love Larson's cartoon of heaven and hell when it, they, you arrive there. Uh, welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. Welcome, welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. <laughs> Makes perfect sense, right? But the question is serious. The question is serious because in British Columbia, the last two to three years, every year, and if this year is not the same as the last, about 40,000 people will pass this year in British Columbia. Meaning about 110 per day, or meaning four to five each hour. So in the time that you left your home and got off the driveway and came and sat and had supper and came and sat in the service and visited a little bit afterwards and get home, you've passed at least a couple hours. That means eight to 10 people will have died during the time that we are together and hopefully not in the service. Now, one of the tech team said, make sure you check under your pew and make sure nobody's there. Every single person in this room has been touched by death. Some of you very recently and others of you will head into it, but all of us in this room have somehow been touched by death. And so if you believe the atheistic worldview and if it is correct that we are nothing more than flesh or blood, we're no different from an insect or a plant or an animal, then we simply live, we die, and then we become worm food. And if you only have this life, then you must make the most of it. And if you only have this life, then if there is suffering and pain, well, man, it sucks to be you. But remember Darwin and the survival of the fittest and the strong win, and you must just be one of the weak ones. That's too bad. And if you somehow find some joy or pleasure in this life, then you must exploit it to the full because you only go around once. We live, we die, and that's the end. So eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die the atheistic worldview. If, however, the majority worldview is true, that there is life beyond the grave, the spiritual view that is shared by all world religions and philosophies that we are more than flesh and blood. Uh, I like how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Making Sense of God. He says, we were not created for love relationships that end in death. Death is an intrusion as a result of sin and our human race is turning away from God. Our sense even now that we were made to last, that we were made for love without parting is a memory trace. It's a divine echo in your brain of our divine origins. We're trapped in a world of death, a world for which we are not designed. Amen. Okay, now go back to our text. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. And what he is saying to Martha in this context is, I am the one who actually hold the keys to the grave, the keys over death, and I have the key to new life. And that is quite a statement. But as you will remember, life is the central theme of John's gospel, right? So thesis statement, I've, the, I've written you these things so that you might believe that you might have life. That word life appears 47 times in this book. The beginning and the end of the book, it bookends. So chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, the word was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and in him was life. Right at the very beginning of the book, he says, introduces him as the creator, the word with God, and in him was life. And then the end, the thesis statement. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Book ends, and in between 45 more references to life. We've covered many of them. 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes might have eternal life. John 4, the conversation with the woman at the well, I have living water for you. You will never thirst. In fact, this water will become a spring of water welling up inside of you to eternal life. And then the clearest declaration of the resurrection, both spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection, John 5, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. That was last week's message. I know my sheep, I call them by name, and they come to me. Jesus calls us, Jesus saves us. Jesus calls to dead people, they come alive in Christ and they live. But then he goes on to say, and an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, the physical dead, will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the great crescendo in this book is John 20, when Jesus walks out of the tomb alive. And the enemy of sin and death in the grave has been defeated. There was one, as a preacher said, got away. One got away. Love it. Uh, Any old rockers in the house? So I'm going to date myself here now. Uh, 1973, this little group called Petra started writing great music. 50 years later, they're still singing. One of their best Easter songs, in my opinion, is the song Grave Robber. And it goes like this. There's a step that we all take alone, an appointment we have with the great unknown. Like a vapor, this life is just waiting to pass like the flowers that fade, like the withering grass. But life seems so long and death so complete and the grave an impossible potion to cheat. But there's one who has been there and still lives to tell. There's one who has been through both heaven and hell and the grave will come up empty-handed that day. Jesus will come and steal us away. Woo! And it's, you know, rock and roll and I wasn't supposed to listen to it because rock was bad back in the day. But wonderful lyrics. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. She's like, if you'd only been here. And he answers her with truth. But then Mary comes. And Mary asks the very same question or uses the very same words. Jesus, if you had only been here, if you'd only been here, my brother would still be alive. And she is in tears. And what's interesting is his response to Mary is different than his response to Martha. Martha got truth. Martha got theology. And Mary gets tears. He enters into her grief. Martha got a put your trust in God. That's what she needed to know. And Mary gets a come sit at my feet, Mary. Come sit here, let's mourn together. Where did you bury him? And he stands at the tomb weeping. And all of those standing around see it and they take note. Look how much he loved this man. Verse 33 and 38, three times you see it. He was deeply moved. He was greatly troubled. He was deeply moved. He enters into their human grief. He enters into the sting of death. Jesus himself feels it, the pain, the angst. But then verse 38, he's like, we got work to do. Still daylight. Remove that stone. And one final conversation. Now, what's funny here is that Martha is four days in, and she's like, ah, there'll be an odor. Now, this is where we need to be reading from the King James. Because in this one verse, the King James really does it a, a great duty when he says, by now he stinketh. <laughs> he stinketh. And Jesus is like, don't worry about that. Remove that stone. And then one final conversation, he calls to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And then he says to the people standing around, unbind him, get those grave clothes off him, 
Let him live, let him go. And I think that when he calls Lazarus out, come out, he is speaking both to death as well as to the friends standing around when he says to them, set this captive free. Death, you have to let go of him. And then to his friends, help him get out of those grave clothes. There's a very interesting implication in that statement. And then the rest of the chapter, just really quickly, are the conversations after the funeral and and a bit of the fallout. Now, it's way too long of a text to do justice to us, but just two comments, two significant things. In verse 45, it's amazing that it says, and many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Many believed in him. And you're like, what? Many? Like, how could it not possibly be everybody believed in him? You just saw a dead guy walk out of the tomb after four days, and some of you believe? What is wrong with you people? Very interesting. The seventh sign in the first half of this book, and the greatest one yet, he raises a man from the dead. And I mention this because there's a school of thought in every generation, and a school of thought is still alive in our generation as well, that says things like this. If God would just show up with a miracle, people would fall on their face and worship. And the truth is, some would, and some wouldn't. And you see it all the way through Scripture. And in certain parts of the world today, if you're aware of what's going on missiologically, God is showing himself in some amazingly incredible ways in other parts of the world in these days. In other parts of the world, God is showing up with visions and dreams and miraculous healings. If if you want a very fascinating little read, Winds in the House of Islam by David Garrison. Winds in the House of Islam. It traces the greatest revival in Islamic history in the last thousand years, in the last 100 years, more Muslims coming to faith in Christ than any other time in human history, and most of them are coming because of the miraculous. Most of them are coming because of miraculous healings or literally visitations. Jesus is showing up, speaking to them in dreams. They're seeing Christ talk and they're coming to faith. But this text tells us that a miracle alone will not ensure believing faith. Because many believed, but many didn't. The second conversation is significant. Take note of that. Caiaphas, the high priest, unknowingly is used by the Holy Spirit to give a prophetic word. He's basically like, hey, calm down, guys. They're like, we're going to lose our power. If everybody keeps coming after this guy, we got to get rid of him. we got to kill him because we're going to lose our power. And Caiaphas is sort of like, chill out, guys. we got a plan here. Don't worry about it. Don't you know that it's better for one guy to die to save the nation, to save all our people? So what he's talking about is the plan that is already being birthed in the back of his mind. We need to arrest him. And within... A couple months, that plan comes to fruition in the Passion Week, and we'll get there in just a couple chapters. What he meant was, we're going to get rid of him. We're going to get rid of our problems. But what the Holy Spirit meant was Jesus is indeed going to die for the nation. Jesus is indeed going to die, not just for this nation, but for the sins of all those scattered around the globe, which includes us. Praise the Lord. So it's an incredible story. It is the final and the greatest sign so far in John's gospel. And there are a ton of directions we could go with this text. There's lots of application. But let me just try to make a couple as we wrap it up. Some basic questions. I think you need to take some time and ponder in a quiet moment when you get away somewhere quiet and ask yourself, why is death such bad news? And you're like, are you stupid, pastor? That is a dumb question. I'm serious. 
Why is death such bad news? Why do we think that it is the worst possible tragedy that could ever happen to a person? Why is it that that thought is in our mind? Uh, death wants to be admired by us. Uh, any of you seen the movie Book Thief? Anybody seen that movie, Book Thief? It's worth watching. It's a very interesting movie. It's set in uh, World War II, Nazi Germany. The narrator for this movie is Death himself. Death narrates through the movie. It's kind of a strange movie. The movie opens with this line. Death is speaking in the background. Here is a small fact. You are going to die. Now, that's a great opening to any movie, right? You're like, oh, wow, this is going to be an interesting movie. Small fact, you're going to die. But then he goes on, and it's like death talking to the audience, and it's almost like he's trying to win us over because he knows that the audience does not like him, does not want to get to know him, wants to reject him. And so he says this, I'm in all truthfulness attempting to be cheerful about this whole topic. Though most people find themselves hindered in believing in me, no matter my protestation, please trust me, I most definitely can be cheerful. This is death speaking. I can be amiable, agreeable, affable, and that's only the A's. Just don't ask me to be nice. Nice has nothing to do with me. It's an interesting topic. Why do we steer away from death so much? Our denial and our avoidance of death betrays, I think what it betrays is our undeniable desire for life. Our desire to live. We love Life, our world, world history loves the rumors of eternal life. I mean, think through the stories from high school history class. Uh, remember the guy, Ponce de Leon? Remember that guy? Traveled all around the world in search of the fountain of youth. Landed in Florida thinking he finally found the promised land where there's going to be the fountain of eternal youth. Uh, remember um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Holy Grail. Drink from that cup, you live eternally. So, we do all that we can to slow down, to deny, to prevent death and decay. Honestly, you don't want to grow old. You want to stay young. So let's just test this. Turn to the person next to you and say, you look so old. <laughs> now, how did that feel? How did that feel? Wouldn't you much rather have someone go, my, you've taken off five years. What happened to you? Instead of being honest and going, oh my goodness, are you aging? <laughs> so we diet and we exercise. We buy lotions and creams and vitamins and miracle pills. We opt for cosmetic surgery, Botox, uh, Botox injections, spa treatments. We color our hair, all in an effort to somehow slow down or cover up the inevitable process of aging and death, right? This is what we do. It is a billion-dollar industry in North America. The truth is we love life. We love living. Agatha Christie, I like living. I've sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, racked with sorrow, but through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a grand thing. No matter how bad my life gets, I still know being alive is a good thing. Woody Allen, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And even Christians have these thoughts. So I had two or three, Billy Graham, uh, 
R.C. Sproul, but one I chose from J.I. Packer. When he was 87 years old, he wrote this really great little book. It's a great book to give to people who are approaching the end of their life. The book is called Finishing Our Course with Joy. He was 87 when he wrote this book, and his line was this, aging is not for wimps. So why this tenacious grasp on life? And I think it's because, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we are created in the image of God. The very DNA of the creator is stamped into us, and God is an eternal God. So therefore, if we are created in his image and his DNA is stamped somehow into the human heart and soul and mind, then we have this longing, we have this innate connection, we have an echo in the back of our minds that we were meant for something more than just this present reality, that we literally, we long for eternity. How I long to sing the songs of heaven. We just sang it, right? That there's a rumor, there's a whisper, there's a quiet voice in the back of our mind that says you were made for more than just this life. But love life like we made, the stats on death are still pretty bleak. 100%. Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or even if by reason of strength, 80. So if you're over 80, oh boy. But the span of their life is toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. That even 80 years goes whoosh like that. James 4. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. And you might be asking about now, so where is the good news in this? And the good news is this, that we cannot conquer death. We can't. You can't, I can't, no human being ever has, save one. There is one who did conquer death. Jesus walked away from the tomb, victorious and alive and powerful. He was called the first fruits from the grave. Now that agrarian farming culture knew precisely what that meant when it was written. We might have to think it through a little bit, but first fruits is exactly what it sounds like. The first sheath of wheat or the first cluster of grapes that you pick. And the first one tells you it's the first. There's many more going to come like it. The first one to get ripe on the vine, but there's a whole bunch more are going to follow it. And Jesus is the first fruits, meaning there's a whole lot more going to follow him. And so we come back to this conversation with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And it is not just some nebulous concept, some theory, or some philosophical framework. He is saying, as he did in John 1, I am the author of life. I'm the creator, the sustainer. I am life. In John 3, remember he said, just like Moses lifted up that snake in the desert and they looked to it, so look to me. Lift up Jesus. And as you look to Jesus, you will have life in his name. He said to the woman of the well, drink from this water and you will never thirst again. All those other pools you're drinking from, you're going to be thirsty. This one is a well of living water. Chapter 5, I have the power to make dead people live. Chapter 6, I am the bread. Nothing in this life can satisfy you, but this bread you will never hunger. And on and on and on and on. We could spend like 20 minutes on that. Martha, the one who believes in me, will live even if he dies. And in fact, he will never die. The body may die, but the spirit is alive unto God and it will live. And so the bad news is that left unchecked, death is killing us. It is. Death is wreaking havoc all around us. Death holds us under the power of sin. 
And the power of death is the power of sin. And so it is our sin and it is the debt and the weight of sin that has to be dealt with. And so once again, enter Jesus Christ who willingly lived a perfect life and then willingly, as we looked last week, willingly laid it down, not for his sin, but for ours. And it didn't end there. You know the story. We're headed to Easter, right? Having paid the penalty... He walks away from the tomb, stripped death of its power, and the grave no longer has a hold on him. No more hold on Christ. So you're like, what about us? What does it mean for us? Well, it means that if we're with Christ, then the way that he has been raised and the way to life eternal has been opened. As Christ was raised, so too we will be raised. So I was thinking this week, the first time that I was traveling with a buddy who had elite traveler status. You know those people? Priority service, priority seating, priority reservations, upgrades, all that great stuff. And so we're standing at the gate and the announcement comes up and it's like, okay, we're now ready to board all the elite travelers, which means important people. People who fly frequently, people we like, and all you elite people, you can come forward, and all you steerage class people, you can just wait. And my buddy's like, let's go. And I'm like, I don't have status. I'm not an elite tra- Nope. He's like, I can get you in. So I go up with him. I remember this vividly, because what I'm expecting is I'm going to get to the gate, and I'm going to be found out. And that attendant is going to go, you back of the line. And I'm going to do the walk of the shame, you know, back to the back of the line. But instead, my buddy shows his boarding card, shows his elite card, and then he says, and he's with me. And boom, I was in. Wow. This is precisely the image we have with Jesus. That he is the one who has journeyed beyond the grave and has conquered sin and death. And when death comes knocking, he is going to step in and say, this one's with me. I've got him covered. I've got her covered. The gospel tells us that there is one who conquered death. The gospel tells us that there actually is a fountain of youth. It is filled with living water. I love how George Herbert puts it. This is a great, you got to think it through. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Spring is coming. Winter is over. Aslan is on the move new life is coming. So our great future hope makes the darkness of this life bearable. We press on for the goal of the upward call. Our labor is not in vain. No matter how bad this life may be, we know eternity is far better. So for the Christian, this is very, very important. For the Christian, this life is as bad as it gets. Are you with me? For the Christian, This life is as bad as it gets, but for those outside of saving faith, no matter how rich this present life may appear, this life for them is as good as it will ever get. It is true, your best life now, if you don't have faith in Jesus. For those who have faith in Jesus, the best life is yet to come. Notice the hint, though, in this text, that just as important as life out there is life in the here and now. And we're going to stop here, and we're going to pick it up in the next couple weeks as we talk about new life. But look at this powerful little thing added in verse 44 when Jesus turns to those people standing around, and he says, take off the grave clothes. And I think what Jesus is saying in that moment is he has called us to death from death to life. So Lazarus is now fully alive, but he's standing there still wrapped in the trappings of his dead way of living. 
He needs those grave clothes pulled off. He needs to begin experiencing newness of life. He probably needs a bath. And I think what Jesus is saying is I've called you from death to life and I will also empower you now to live out that resurrection life. It's what Paul referred to when he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Not just life eternal, not just the resurrection in the day to come, but resurrection now where the grave clothes don't cling to us anymore. So we've got the answer for death, and the answer is a person. When Jesus said he is the resurrection and the life, Jesus makes dead things live, not just a future hope, but a present reality. That over the dead areas of our life, Jesus speaks life and hope and peace. So I'll wrap with these words, which we're going to sing. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you. I was breathing but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb till I met you. You called my name and I ran out of that grave. When you stand with me, we'll pray. We're going to sing. So Lord, I would pray that you would somehow by your spirit let what needs to land in the hearts of the listener land and take root and everything else can fall away, but that you would anchor us into this truth that there was one who has been through both heaven and hell. There's one who went into the grave and came out of the grave again, only one. Jesus, you were the first fruits. You conquered sin and death in the grave, and then you turned and you said to us, I did this on your behalf. I suffered on your behalf. I paid the penalty on your behalf and I have fully conquered. I am the victorious one. There's no power anymore. And if your life is hidden in me, I am indeed the resurrection and the life. And so Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray that each one of them would know you as the resurrection and the life. I pray that they would hear in their inner person the call of the spirit to come into life, that they would hear that call, step out of the deadness that you've been living in and step into the life given to you in Jesus Christ. And then Father, we also are so grateful for the future hope that we have, knowing that unless you return, we will one day pass through the veil of death, but we know that it's just the beginning, not the end. And we have this great hope that there is coming a day when there is going to go out another loud shout and a trumpet call and the archangel, and there's going to be this voice that says, come out of the graves, and that every person who has ever lived in all of human history is going to come again out of the graves, and we're going to stand before you again. And Father, we live with that hope in mind. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. May you be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.